0: Welcome to the Archimedes podcast in a rainy and cold autumn. Archimedes is the evidence-based section of the Archives for Diseases of Childhood and what we do is we think about how to do evidence-based medicine or some aspect of it along with reporting on some clinical questions. Now these are things that people have come across in their day-to-day lives. They've felt unsure about whether that's the right thing to do or not or, or how strong the evidence is behind the thing that they're doing and then they formulate a really precise clinical question this is using the PICO type so usually it's just a patient intervention, comparison and outcomes of interest. They fiddle around a bit if you're doing diagnostics or prognostic questions, but it's that sort of structured approach to questioning. Now with that in mind, they go to databases of the published evidence, and then they select out what's likely to be the best quality evidence to answer that question. They appraise it, they weigh it for its benefits and its disadvantages, and then they synthesize all of that together, taking into account how good or bad the stuff is and then come up with an actionable clinical bottom line. It's all well and good saying more research is needed but for the patients in front of you right now you need to do something and the evidence based medicine approach would suggest ways forward or at least suggest ways to offer and approach. Now we're starting this month by considering something that is sort of fairly much around at the moment. Something to do with not sureness. Not sureness is a word that is sadly and currently missing from the dictionary. It is thick in the air at the moment, like sun seekers on an August beach or the clatter of beer bottles in the morning after a party in 2019. Not sureness can come in many angles and shades, and if we could distinguish between them, we may be able to seek an understanding of our lack of understanding more clearly. For instance, we may currently be asking people to stay away from others for 10 days because they have a SARS-CoV-2 positive test. This is source isolation. It's to stop known infectivity. Or we may be asking them to stay away for 14 days because their household has someone with a positive test this is quarantine, to stop unknowing transmission as you develop the disease. Or, and this is usually a previous thing at the moment, we may have been asking people to stay away from others because they are at high risk of complications of the virus. This we call protective isolation, it's to stop catching stuff off others. Now, if we lazily refer to that all as self-isolation, or all as shielding, or all as quarantine, we end up introducing a great deal of confusion. We introduce a lack of clear knowing about our uncertainties because of our ambiguous use of language. Now this is the same when we are doing evidence-based practice. We should be clear about which group of patients we are referring to, and that's, that's a key in that structured clinical question. For instance, those who arrive doors with old-fashioned pre-Covid Kawasaki disease. The intervention that we're evaluating, and that might be a high-dose corticosteroid, and the outcomes that we're hoping to measure, such as fever resolution, how well the heart works, or the need for rescue therapies. In doing this, rather than conflating every patient with a Kawasaki and a Kawasaki like condition at every stage of treatment, rescue, up front, partial, full blown and a mishmash of different treatments and timings, then we can extract cleaner uncertainties and this will demonstrate the particular limits of our knowledge around answering that particular question. Now. In a shocking bit of actual good timing, that bit of editorial actually prefaces our first question which is, should we use steroids as primary therapy for Kawasaki disease? And this was written by Laura Sevenoaks and Robert Tuller who are both from the Bristol Medical School down in the uh, area of Bristol in the UK which is fairly obvious if you live in the UK but might be more so uh, unclear in other places. The scenario is a young boy who has been brought to a cardiology appointment because he needs to have his coronary artery aneurysm monitored and this was a complication of his Kawasaki disease from 11 months old. You wonder if he would have been as likely to develop that coronary abnormality if he'd been treated with steroids up front when he presented with Kawasaki disease. The structured clinical question is the patient in a child with acute severe Kawasaki disease, the intervention, steroids as primary therapy, the comparison is not adding steroids to primary therapy, so so just intravenous immunoglobulin zone, and the outcome of primary interest to this group, the risk of developing a coronary abnormality. Now, remember when you're doing these, you're coming up with your main question, but you'll also have other things dizzling in the back of your mind as well. Like, well, what's the side effect profile of using steroids in this group? Is it the same as usual or different? They went away, they searched, they searched Medline, they searched Cochrane, they searched the Embase database. They used free text words, they used mesh words, and they really looked for RCTs, systematic review, meta-analyses to try and get the highest quality of evidence that was possible their approach was to try and draw out as much as they could that was of good quality and they ended up with eight different trials that were included. Nine of the trials were included in a meta-analysis and after systematic review of over a thousand patients and then other meta-analyses had fewer trials in them because they had slightly different ways of looking at things and they they drew in non-trial data at times and they had indeed in here some decent sized population surveys where they'd gone out and looked to see of the whole population of identified Kawasaki disease, who had got on and developed the coronary artery uh, aneurysms, and who hadn't, so there's a lot of evidence here, but but it, it's relatively mixed. It has trials, it has cohort studies, which themselves may have confounding indications in there. But broadly speaking, those where immunoglobulins had steroids added on top ended up with lower risk of having coronary artery abnormalities. Now their commentary is nice and neat and explains a little bit about how things have developed, what Kawasaki's disease is, the way that we think this is working and the way that steroids might modify the inflammatory response. And they come up with the bottom line that that with the evidence that we have at the moment It might be sensible to add in steroids to help reduce the incidence of coronary artery abnormalities but they do identify that a further trial would be helpful to answer these questions. One of the things that would be nice would be able to target those at a higher risk population but within the data that they've looked at they've seen that the way that the scoring systems work in the Japanese population is quite different in Kawasaki in a non-Japanese population and so it's it's really difficult to use that system with any idea. And of the evidence that they have for the types of steroids to use and way to give steroid and remember this is observational not direct trial evidence it appears that repeated doses of steroid produce a more favorable outcome as to a single dose or a more traditional type of pulsing way forward. Now our next clinical question is not to do with steroids and it's not to do with hearts, but back in the bad old days when I was training, steroids were very much indicated in the treatment of infantile hemangiomas that were at risk of doing bad things to eyes or dodgy stuff elsewhere. But now we've got a question that is asking about topical timolol uh, instead of oral propranolol in the treatment of superficial infantile hemangiomas now this comes from Manal Patel who is from the School of Clinical Medicine as a medical student at the University of Cambridge in Cambridge in the UK again Um, and uh, Manal asks the question in Infants with high-risk infantile hemangioma is topical timolol monotherapy, so just timolol cream compared to with oral propranolol which we know works in these cases, safe and effective in getting regression, shrinkage of the high-risk superficial infantile hemangioma. That's an awful lot of words that were triggered by a case of a nine week old prem infant on the NICU who developed one of these things up and around the eye. Now, the worry there is that the things grow and then they cause problems with sight or they cause other problems, potentially leading also to facial disfigurement as well as sight impairments. And so so there's a like, how can we manage this? Particularly in the setting of the premature neonate, Propranolol has systemic effects on blood pressure management and control and potentially on management of sugars as well. And so so if there is a topical treatment, maybe that would be better. Now, I'd never heard of this at all, but they went away um, and they searched on a large number of places using PubMed, using a a complex and comprehensive search strategy, looking in the uh, Cochrane Library, looking on the whole of the nice evidence search going through there to try and find something. And I have to say, I've never found anything particularly useful from that database and uh, neither did this. Um, But PubMed came back with 76 results, 22 of them were got into full text and then driven down. And there were two studies left that had a pretty decent approach to try to answer it. Now, these two studies, one of them was a single center prospective cohort where those assessing were not meant to know whether the patient had been given the propranolol or the timolol, Um, they weren't actually randomised, they were placed in these cohorts, so there's some uncertainty about whether it was like the better risk ones went into one arm versus the other. But that was 724 children and that was looked up over a long period of time, six and a half months or so that while the treatment was going on for and they found that there was no difference in the uh, in the two for regression of the infantile hemangioma but they did have a difference in the local adverse effects and the systemic adverse effects there were fewer systemic adverse effects in the topical group and in the local group, so sort of itchiness or skin blemishes. That was more likely with the topical group. The other thing that was found was actually a proper randomized controlled trial where they were randomised to get the timolol or the propranolol with 6 months follow up again. This one much smaller only 26 children rather than 724. This demonstrated no significant difference between the two and no significant difference in the adverse effects between the two but the relative risk point estimate there was 7 with the propranolol on the uh, more likely to have systemic side effects end. The equivalence, small trial, wide confidence intervals, not entirely certain that they're equivalent. But synthesising, drawing those two things together, makes you think that actually topical timolol might actually be as good and less side-effecty than using oral propranolol. Evidence is a little bit weak and a little bit dodgy and and if there was a very large trial of this that would settle us down a bit more. But it's certainly something to consider if the side effects of oral propranolol are either worried about happening and worried about being too big, or perhaps if somebody starts on oral propranolol but needs to stop because of the side effects there, maybe this is a perfectly sensible option to use instead. (laughs) Thank you for the authors putting all the work into making those Archimedeses and you too could be being talked about on this Archimedes or if you volunteer actually be interviewed for this Archimedes. Nowadays everybody is absolutely super brill at that whole doing stuff online malarkey and so you too could be interviewed whether you live in Australia or Rotherham, it doesn't really matter. We can get you on this podcast if your Archimedes gets through and you volunteer. Until next month, I am wishing you a safe and lovely time with much hand cream in between your hand washing and do enjoy yourselves as much as you can. Thank you for listening.